Welcome to the official podcast of the Clean Water Campaign for Michigan. This campaign seeks to place clean water issues front and center in the year building up to the 2018 elections by urging every candidate running for public office to make a strong stand on critical issues affecting Michigan's waters. Using storytelling and music events across the state to amplify the groundswell of public support for clean water issues, this campaign is driven by Michiganders from all walks of life who share a similar priority, the protection of our water, a most vital resource. On this very special episode, campaign founder Seth Bernard interviews Abdul El-Sayed, running for governor as a Democrat. Don't forget, fellow Michiganders, to get out and vote in the primary elections this coming Tuesday, August 7th. We can't make change unless we make our voices heard. So make a plan, grab a friend, and get out to the polls this Tuesday, August 7th. This episode has been generously sponsored by the Benzie Community Water Council. The mission of the Benzie Community Water Council is to ensure that the waters of the county and the northwest corner of the state remain subject to the public trust doctrine and are thus preserved and protected for the common good of the peoples and the ecosystems they serve. It is their intent to work with any citizen groups and government entities committed to the common purpose of maintaining safe, clean, and plentiful water for the equitable use of people, animals, and plants. BCWC's flagship event is the Benzie County Water Festival, which seeks to attract, entertain, educate, and activate individuals and groups within the community. The event, which has been held every year since 2011, features world-class Michigan musicians, speeches from water luminaries, interactive multimedia projects and presentations, artisan foods and beverages, workshops, visual art, theater and dance, children's activities, and connections to campaigns and projects to protect our water locally and address global challenges. And now to Seth Bernard with an in-depth interview with Abdul Al-Sayed. Bernard here with the Clean Water Campaign interviewing Abdul Al-Sayed, running for governor as a Democrat. Welcome, Abdul. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Um, so we have a lot to talk about. Um, Abdul has been uh, very strong on water issues, I'll say that up front. Uh, we want to get into the nitty-gritty. Um, so let's, let's first start by framing this conversation um, by you telling us why you're running for governor and I will say why we're running the Clean Water Campaign for Michigan. Beautiful. Um, so I was, I was never supposed to run for office. I uh, you know, just thought it, thought it was off limits um, for somebody like me, uh, given my ethnicity and, and heritage and, um, and, and uh, religion. But um, you know, I'll be honest, I, I went into medicine because I love people and I love science. And uh, the preoccupation I had with inequalities in access to healthcare uh, is what's led me down my path. And um, so I studied biology and politics in undergrad. Uh, you know, and if you sort of think about biology being uh, errors that our cells make uh, in terms of allocating resources in our bodies, well, politics um, oftentimes uh, is about errors or good decisions, but usually errors, uh, that our societies make about allocating uh, scarce resources across our communities. And, um, if you want to understand why people get sick, we focus a lot on biology and the errors that the cells make. We don't focus as much on the politics. But really, um, you can pattern health and disease based on uh, access to basic things like a good job that pays a living wage, that puts a good roof over someone's head, puts clean air in someone's lungs, clean water in somebody's cup. And um, 
And so I, I did a PhD in public health and then went to medical school and realized that if I wanted to solve the inequities that I was so focused on, I really had to do something about the politics of health and disease. Uh, that led me uh, first to uh, rebuilding Detroit's health department as health commissioner between 2015 and 2017. Uh, we rebuilt it around the well-being of kids. Our goal was to make sure that kids uh, had access to everything that they needed to be able to learn and earn in Detroit like we would want for any child anywhere. Led us to doing things like building a program to guarantee every child a free pair of glasses. Delivered at school, we delivered 7,000 pairs of glasses. Uh, we stood up to some of the biggest corporate polluters in the city uh, and in the state. We forced a Marathon Petroleum Refinery, the most polluted zip code in Michigan, uh, to have um, to, to reduce their emissions when they had wanted to increase them, spending $10 million of their own money. Mm. And then after the Flint water crisis, we had every school, daycare, and Head Start tested for lead in the water, making sure that, uh, that our kids weren't being exposed to lead in their schools. Um, ultimately, though, came to appreciate that the, the, the values of the mayor I was working for weren't the same as mine whether it was the fact that 17,000 homes this year alone will be have their water shut off mm -hmm. and, and, and my advocacy against that was falling on deaf ears, or the fact that, um, that the demolitions program that the mayor touts so much uh, is exposing kids to lead and, and, and not wanting to listen uh, about what needed to be done to make that safer. You know, we led a task force uh, after having led a study to show the, that evidence, uh, led a task force to, to, to recommend 18 recommendations uh, to fixing that problem and only eight of the 18 got followed. I was watching as, as, uh, as Governor Snyder poisoned 9,000 kids mm -hmm. in Flint and Donald Trump got elected president. I had to ask myself what my responsibilities were. And, um, and I decided that uh, in a moment right now, we need leadership that was willing to stand up and do a couple of basic things right. Number one, break the chokehold on, on our politics by corporations that have bought and sold politicians in this state for decades and uh, be able to articulate a vision for Michigan that is about making our state more just, more equitable, and more sustainable. And so um, that is the campaign we're running. We've been to over 100 different cities now. I've been to Traverse City, I think, five times. Um, we've, uh, we've, we've, we've got 3,000 active volunteers, not just people who signed up, people who have actually come out and knocked doors and sent texts and made phone calls for us. Uh, we've raised uh, millions of dollars. We've um, done it without taking any corporate money. And uh, we've been able to get endorsed by um, some of the most prominent uh, progressive and environmental groups in the, in the country and in the state. And, um, and, you know, people are really excited about what this candidacy can do for the evolution of progressive and democratic politics in, in Michigan and, and nationally. So we're really excited about what we're doing. We're excited about where we need to go. Um, and most importantly to me, it's not about winning a campaign as much as it about governing on justice. Um, and so all the decisions that we make in this campaign are about Know, to me, are, are made with the, with the sense of four to eight years of leadership uh, in mind. Mm, mm, thank you. So the Clean Water Campaign for Michigan exists uh, because we recognize that failures in leadership have put our Great Lakes and our, our watersheds in peril and uh, have violated the basic human right to clean, safe, affordable drinking water. So we're using storytelling and we're using music and events across the state, interviews like this, to amplify the groundswell that we recognize of support for clean water issues in Michigan. Very important to Michigan residents, Michigan voters. It's something that brings us together in divisive times. It's something that lies at the very essence of our identity and, uh, and our ability to survive. So um, we came together as a group uh, to sort of take a lot of these issues that exist around the state and try to bring them together and break down some of the silos. Um, 
So big issues right now, big water issues all across the state. Um, so let's just kind of get right into it. Um, one of our one of our big things that we're trying to urge every everyone running for office in this election to take a strong stand on is prior, prioritizing public water over private corporations. So this is a big issue and um, two of the biggest things that I'll bring up right now, you were the Detroit Health Commissioner as you mentioned. So the Detroit water crisis is something that is, is still a huge problem. It's in some ways become overshadowed by the Flint water crisis and the Nestle decision. But let's draw a parallel right now between the Detroit water crisis and you see the privatization of municipal water, you see raise, uh, wages going down, and you see the rates of water going up. Um, and then we have the Nestle decision where a giant multinational corporation is allowed to uh, pump and bottle and sell for billions in profits public water for pennies per year uh, despite public outcry. So as governor, how do you take a stand on prioritizing public water over private corporations? And specifically, how do you address the Detroit water crisis and the Nestle decision? Yeah, so I'll tell you, it's, it is embarrassing to the Great Lakes state that we as a state, despite having more fresh water than any other state in the entire country, 84% of America's fresh water sits in Michigan, 21% of the world's fresh water, Despite having so much water, we are the epicenter of almost every water-related disaster you hear about, mm -hmm. right? Whether it is the Flint water crisis, the Detroit shutoff crisis, uh, PFAS in the water in Kent County, uh, PBBs in the groundwater in, in mid-Michigan, uh, Line 5 uh, up north, or the fact that we've just allowed Nestle to bottle our waters for cents on the dollar when our own people don't get access to clean, fresh water. So to me, I, I think the point that you made is a good one insofar as these are political crises. And we have to stand up and decide that when we make decisions about what we do as a society, that we're going to put the public interests over private interests. We've already articulated um, our plan to provide access to clean, uh, drinkable water for every family that they would need to be able to drink, to clean, to cook, and to bathe free of charge. And we would pay for that on a sliding scale and by holding corporations like Nestle accountable uh, for our water. And so, you know, for us, we can do this if this is a choice that we make to do it. The cost of water is not the water itself. The cost of water is the water infrastructure. And in Michigan, we've had an infrastructure failure across the board. It's not just water, it's water and roads and our access to, to broadband um, and access to clean energy infrastructure. All of these things are failures for us. Uh, and so we've articulated a joint plan both to provide every family access to that basic living standard of water and then also uh, to make real deep investments in our uh, water infrastructure that would help to pay for that, mm -hmm. uh, to do that in ways that put the public's interest first. Um, you know, to me, the reason we, we see corporations operate this way is because they've in effect had their hands all over our politicians. Mm -hmm. I mean, just in this race alone, not including the dark money that we all know operates, uh, a corporation can throw $68,000 to, uh, to one of my competitors. I don't take that money. And the reason I don't take that money is because I don't want to be in a circumstance where when I'm making decisions like this in Lansing, that those corporations can walk into my office and say, well, now it's time to pay the piper. I'm not, I don't believe that that's how politics should work. And so it's about politicians making the decisions that they are going to run campaigns that are consistent with the public interest. They're going to focus on the public when they make decisions when they get into office and make decisions that put the public first when it comes to key resources like water. We've got to decide as a society that water is not just any other commodity. 
right? It is a human right. The basic amount of water that you need is a human right. Now, you're gonna be filling up a swimming pool, that may not be a right. And so at some point, how do we make sure that those who are uh, using more water than they need are paying a little bit more, and the rest of us uh, who are using the basic amount of water that they need that we're providing it for free of charge, particularly in communities that have suffered under the rising costs of water for a very long time. So I believe that we can solve these crises. Um, we can solve them consistently, but it's about a choice about how we run government. Um, at the core of the set of ideals that we use uh, and we operationalize to make political decisions. Mm -hmm. um, I was just on tour with a good friend, Will Copeland, who is a Detroit native and resident um, activist, uh, fellow musician, wonderful MC and poet. Um, he wanted me to ask a question on his behalf as a Detroiter. What will you do as governor to combat runaway water slash utility rates, especially in Michigan's urban centers? Yeah, so I think, you know, if, if we're able to provide everybody access to the basic amount of water that they, they need to, to, to survive, um, you know, for most families, those costs will be zero. And the way we're defining that is to say, what does the average family of four use mm -hmm. for these purposes, cleaning, drinking, cooking, bathing, um, and then being able to provide that water free of charge. That, that most families should not be paying for their water under those circumstances. Um, similarly with electricity, right? The way that we've, we've allowed a few corporations to monopolize the entire system has hurt everyone else. I met a gentleman uh, just a couple weeks ago named Matt Rokoff, and Matt is, a leader when it comes to uh, to thinking about renewable energy in the future of, of Michigan. And he's built a home, um, which actually he's, he's, he took a home over 100 years old and renovated it, and now he is beyond energy neutral. In fact, he harvests enough electricity that DTE pays him over $500 every month in, in, uh, in, in, in electricity because that's what he's creating. What we've got to be able to do is think about how do we create a system where we have incented everybody to be able to harvest clean renewable energy and we've broken the monopolies that corporations like DTE and Consumers Energy have on our grid. If we do that, we can bring the cost down tremendously, right? It's the fact is, is that right now, you know, we burn things like, like coal or, uh, or, or, or oil uh, to produce energy for ourselves when the sun and the wind produce infinite amounts of, of energy. And the question becomes, how do we rebuild and rethink our system so that we're harnessing those kinds of energy? And how do we get the politics out of the way and the disincentives out of the way of, of a set of corporations who have every incentive to do what's called rent-seeking, i.e. using their political clout to continue to have as much money as they want coming out of a system that's moved, that moved beyond them, um, and, and use our politics to, to move that, that conversation forward. Now, the single one of the single biggest uh, contributors to political campaigns in the state of Michigan is DTE. Why? They contribute on both sides of the aisle. Why? Because they know that right now the technology exists to put them out of business. And the only reason we're not doing it is because they have figured out how to own the politics around this. Um, and so we've got to move beyond it. And here's the thing, every ounce of uh, fossil fuel that we burn is uh, we're burning it into the lungs of our children, and that's how we have to think about it. And so we've got a responsibility to think about in embracing renewables around breaking the monopolies that exist right now, which curbs the cost for folks in places like Detroit, and over the long term allows us to live sustainably in ways that we don't right now. Thank you. Um, so let's talk about this Nestle decision, and let's let's try to frame this one around the amazing um, showing that we had in that in that public comment session. So you had over 80,000 people show up to say we oppose this decision. You had 75 people show up to say we support it. 
and yet uh, the DEQ went through and approved the permit. What do you have to say to those people who showed up and feel like their voices weren't heard? They weren't heard. I mean, that's the fact, right? Like, their voices were not heard. And the decision that was made was about some uh, austere interpretation of a set of laws that were in place, uh, contrary to the public good in the first place. So, you know, what the DEQ always does, and it was the same circumstance we faced when uh, we went after them on, uh, on the situation with Marathon Petroleum, is that they'll say, well, the law is the law. And you'll say, well, you know, the law is man-made. And the law has been made by people who have been bought off by the very corporations that you are intended to regulate on. And they're contrary to the, the ideals that we're supposed to put in place. And let's be clear, every, every law is interpretable. Yes, you have to follow the law, but every law is interpretable. And, um, and the question of who interprets it and why mm -hmm. often leads to the outcomes that you see. And so we've got a corporation like Nestle that is bottling our water uh, for $200 a year, right? When you've got families in Detroit who are paying more than $200 a month for their water and are getting their water shut off. And, uh, and to me, it's just, it is, it, is, it is completely emblematic of everything that's wrong with the way that our system works, right? The big guy's always trying to take advantage of the little guy and the big guy almost always wins. Right? In this circumstance, you're talking about a multi-billion a multi dollar, uh, multinational corporation that could care less about you and I, could care less about a Great Lakes, could care less about the people of the state of Michigan. Uh, they exist to, uh, to drive up shareholder value and uh, to move forward a bottom line. And, uh, they operate with that that in mind, and so long as we allow these corporations to continue to get away uh, with what we're doing, and we're not willing to stand up as a system uh, against the abuse and exploitation that we see from corporations like this, we're going to keep seeing decisions made, and that starts with our politics, mm -hmm. right? There's a reason we don't take corporate money. There's a reason that we're trying to run a campaign that's focused on mobilizing the grassroots, because the only way we move forward is when we decide that we are not going to be beholden to the very system that creates the corruption, that creates the outcomes that we see in the first place. And so, yes, your voices weren't heard. They weren't. And you should be damn mad about it because uh, it's wrong and it's, it's, it's frustrating and it's exploitative uh, and it is evil. And the question becomes, well, what are we going to do about it? And what I don't want is that people walk away from this and say, well, I raised my voice and nothing happened, so, mm, so you can't ever win. Mm -hmm. No. You have to keep driving forward. Mm -hmm. Take that burn and say, okay, what do we make out of it next? How do we turn this into changing the system so that the next time that actually takes into account? If you don't like the laws as they stand, then go out, go vote for somebody who's going to change the laws, get the laws changed, and then change the system, right? Mm -hmm. um, that's what we need to do. Here's the thing. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm relatively new to politics. I've been doing this for about a year now. One of the things that's real clear is when you talk to a lot of folks in the establishment part of, who are part and beholden to the system, they'll always say, well, you know what? Young people and people of color don't vote. So it doesn't really matter what they think. Okay, there's a way to fix that, right? They'll say, well, a lot of those folks, they're not gonna show their voices, so we don't really care what they have to say. There's a way to fix that, right? And so we've gotta stand up and decide that we're gonna fix that. And, um, and so yeah, your voices weren't heard. They usually aren't heard in the current system. You know whose voices are heard? Nestle's voices are heard because they speak it in terms of money that a lot of these corporate politicians use to win their elections and continue and perpetuate their power. So um, you don't like the system as it stands? Let's change the system. Hmm. So, and another thing about this, this decision is that it's captured the nation's attention. We saw, you know, big media outlets and prominent people all across the country talking about the Nestle decision. 
And Flint has also captured the nation's attention. Uh, another big piece of news in recent Michigan uh, history is Flint being cut off from state-subsidized bottled water. Um, so this is, in some ways, an issue that uh, has been called the biggest human rights failure in modern history. Um, and it still isn't solved. How would you, as governor, fix the Flint water crisis once yeah. and for all and prevent other communities in Michigan from being poisoned? So first of all, let's be clear. It's been more than 1,400 days since Flint was poisoned, and those people still don't have clean water. I've been in Flint several times in the last two weeks alone, and everybody I talk to does not trust the water. And the reason they don't trust the water is because they have no reason to trust the government that's telling them that the water is fine. And so if you've already been poisoned once, right, shame on you, trick me once, shame on you, right? Trick me twice, shame on me. And that's the, the logic. And so the thing is, is that you can't in the same week turn on the faucet for Nestle and turn off the faucet for Flint. So those folks need water uh, delivered into their community so long as they do not trust the water. And then we have to give them reasons to trust the water, right? And that means to me, uh, full lead pipe replacement, right? So long as there are lead pipes in the ground, I wouldn't trust the water either. It means full lead pipe replacement ASAP. It also means that we're providing the means of healing uh, for people in Flint through the next several decades. These kids who were poisoned, 9,000 kids, um, they're gonna continue to suffer the consequences of that exposure for a really long time. What science tells us is that lead sits in the bones for a really, really long time. It competes uh, for, uh, for places with calcium, which is what your bones are made out of. And so when it comes to how you heal somebody, you have gotta make sure that they have access to the healthcare that they need moving forward. That means universal health care in Flint, but it should be universal health care for everybody in, 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 the, in the state and ideally in the country. But it also means that we are empowering them to move beyond some of the cognitive deficits that can come because of lead poisoning, which means fixing Flint schools. And let's be clear, while Detroit public schools are the worst in Michigan, Flint is not so far away. And so the question becomes, how are we going to empower Flint schools so that those kids get the best in terms of cognitive st stimulation to uh, reduce the potential cost of the, 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 the lead exposure in, in their overall development. Um, and then we've got to be having folks who are at the table when decisions about Flint are being made overall. Um, and when you talk to people in Flint, the thing that they'll tell you is always that I need a job, right? Unemployment is high in a place like Flint. And so the question becomes, how are we investing in small business opportunities and investing in adult basic education uh, so that folks in Flint have access to high quality jobs moving forward that allow them to provide the basic things that they need for their families. Um, those are big responsibilities. But again, even when, you come, when it comes to the economy, Flint used to be a auto industry town. And when the auto industry up and left, there hasn't been enough investment in the means of small business. And so you haven't seen small businesses flourish. And so jobs went away. And so the question becomes, how do we stop in the state subsidizing huge corporations who haven't created a net job in the last 10 years? How do we start investing in ourselves through education? How do we start investing in our places through access to good infrastructure, good roads, good transportation and mass transportation opportunities, high quality water infrastructure, access to universal broadband? How do we start investing, making those investments so that you start, you start seeing small businesses form and grow, which are really where you have to go if you want to create jobs? Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. Yeah, I, I appreciate you bringing that up. It's an overarching theme that's come up a lot in our talks with people around the state. Our next featured interview is going to be with Dr. Michelle Johnson, uh, who's a public scholar and professor. 
and she talks a lot about the need for a restoration economy. Uh, an economy that's built on restoration is something that came up in one of my songs, and it's really sort of taking a, a broader look at the violence that has been uh, wrought on our communities by this system that rewards multinational corporations for making short-term profits at the expense of our social ecological systems. These are profits that leave the communities, leave the state. Um, so you're talking about a lot of uh, localism. A lot of our partners in this effort are uh, across uh, across the spectrum, business uh, leaders. We have uh, partners in the nonprofit world, a lot of artists. Localism is a strong theme in, in um, some of the solutions that we see to protect our water. So we talked about Detroit, we talked about Nestle, we talked about Line 5. Let's talk about, when well, we talked about Flint, but we haven't talked about Line 5. Mm -hmm. So we're here at the Groundwork Center, uh, Groundwork Center for Resilient Communities. It has been a very strong leader on Line 5 and many other issues. Um, the Oil and Water Don't Mix Coalition is a group of uh, nonprofits working together to shut down Line 5. The Great Lakes Business Network is a, a network of business le leaders calling for the shutdown of Line 5. Again, this is an issue that's been frustrating um, because you see a huge amount of public support for it uh, all across uh, the spectrum. And it's something that the governor and the attorney general have the authority to do, but yet there's still oil f flowing through this 65-year-old rotting pipeline uh, in the epicenter of the world's largest source of fresh surface water. So as governor, what would you do about Line 5? Day one, I'm going after shutting it down. Why? Look, we are um, we're allowing a, a pipeline that flows through the Straits of Mackinac that puts at risk Lake Michigan and Lake Huron and any contiguous body of water from there that in a matter of days could destroy local ecosystems in those lakes, irreparable harm being done to one of the, the world's most important bodies of fresh water so that we can allow one Canadian corporation to continue to profiteer. I just, I just don't see it. And uh, to my mind, there is enough <clears throat> of a public goods responsibility and a public health responsibility uh, to immediately shut it down. And like you said, it can be done. Um, the question is whether or not somebody wants to deal with the long-term politics of getting it done. And, uh, and to me, that's a fight worth taking on. And so uh, I'm committed to shutting down Life Line 5. I've been committed to shutting it down uh, since I started this campaign because I don't see any argument as to why this is not a deep responsibility for the state of Michigan and, frankly, for the United States of America and, frankly, for the world uh, that, that needs to be done, needs to be done immediately. I mean, we just saw a ship. Right, anchored, didn't realize where it was anchoring, and anchored and, and actually ruptured a small part of the line. Um, and, and what's funny is that the current attorney general is suing the shipping company, right, rather than suing Enbridge. And, um, and so it's, <laughs> instead of suing uh, this gigantic corporation that profiteers off of burning fossil fuels, he is suing a small shipping company based in Escanaba. And, um, and you wonder how much has to do with corporate power and wealth. And it's the same story we keep saying. So uh, I'm committed to shutting it down. You know, I just had a great conversation with uh, a representative from uh, the, the Great Lakes Business Collaborative as well, um, and uh, excited to continue to talk to business partners. Well, people don't realize, um, a lot of times when you take positions like mine, uh, folks on the other side will accuse you of being anti-business. And actually, I honestly think that the perpetuation 
of a series of monopolies who have done everything to potentially threaten smaller businesses under them are what truly are anti-business. Everybody who believes in capitalism knows that the single biggest threat to capitalism is monopolies, right? And we've watched monopolies take over when it comes to key sectors. And you're seeing a huge consolidation in the healthcare sector. You're seeing consolidation in the energy sector. You're seeing consolidation uh, in, in the retail sector with folks like Amazon and Walmart, right? And all of that consolidation hurts businesses under. Um, and, uh, and so we've got a responsibility and government has always had a responsibility to protect against monopolism, which is the end game of what we're seeing. And so to me, if you really wanna be pro-business, what you've got to be able to do is make sure that a few corporations don't dominate the entire economy Right, and then kill any sort of innovation happening under them, um, and and you know go back to economics 101. That's a basic premise. So I actually think my position is about as pro business as it gets. Don't let one or two or a few businesses act together to dominate and then kill the opportunities for every other business that operates under them. My job is to be able to keep an even playing field for all all businesses, so that businesses can compete on an even footing rather than allowing some businesses to in effect influence the political sector so that they get uh, they get special treatment and then get to continue to dominate and continue to grow and continue continue uh, to, to push out everyone else. You can sort of think about it like a garden, right? If you have a few dominant uh, species in the garden, they're gonna kill out, eat out the soil for every other species. If you want a good garden, you've gotta make sure that some of them don't overgrow so that you have enough diversity in your garden, right? And that's the way the economy works too. Mm-hmm. I, I heard recently, I wasn't aware of this, but that the game monopoly was created by a teacher to educate students about the dangers of hmm. capitalism and that it's kind of been flipped on its head over the years. Hmm. Um, I mean, I'll tell you, right? Capitalism as a system is a great system if you're willing to play by the rules of capitalism. And the rules of capitalism are that nobody's allowed to be a monopoly, right? Because once you become a monopoly, right, at that point you dominate the entire board and nobody else gets to do anything, right? And so I worry a lot about that. And so long as we're giving every business even access and even playing field, you don't get any subsidies because you're a huge corporation. You're not getting any, any special tax breaks because you're a huge corporation. You're not getting special treatment on the use of land or uh, special treatment on whether or not we're gonna regulate against the externalities that you produce and poisoning our air or our water, fine. But we've got to remember that the entire point of maintaining a capitalism was that that, capital, that, that, that capitalism and the economy was not supposed to reach over into the political sector and dominate the political sector, right? That's what we saw in the Gilded Age back in the early 1900s, um, much to the detriment of the economy, uh, which is what ultimately you know, led us down the path that we led. And so we, we should have learned our lessons and our, our responsibility is to, uh, is to is A, to regulate when we see one corporation uh, or a set of corporations engaging in, in monopolistic or oligopolistic behaviors and not to give any one very large player access to, to special services because they're so large. Um, that, that, that were, those were the rules of the game, right? We're starting to see exactly the opposite now, right? Our, our, our government bends over backwards to help the big guys beat up the little guys, and it was never supposed to be that way. If you're just joining us, I'm Seth Bernard here with Abdul El Sayed. I did watch a lot of videos of you and, and heard um, some wonderful things um, I loved your TED Talk, and uh, I love uh, what you've done as a doctor to sort of uplift some of these themes that we're talking about with the water work um, around water equity and environmental justice. Um, I was just at a racial justice conference uh, with some tribal leaders, and I asked my friend Cecilia Lapointe uh, 
to, to bring a question to the table here. And her question is, how does water justice relate to environmental racism and addiction in Native communities? Hmm. So I think, um, I think the, the relationship there is pretty clear. I mean, look, if, you, if you're talking about access to, to any resource, poverty is going to play a role. And then if poverty plays a role, then in, unfortunately, in a structurally race-based society, then usually ethnicity and race play a role, right? And so, you know, you look at where these water-related disasters have happened, uh, they're almost always in low-income communities of color. And uh, that perpetuates itself and replicates itself almost everywhere we go. Um, and then when you talk about addiction, addiction is a consequence oftentimes it's a disease in a disease that is most likely to afflict the poor. Um, and, you know, poverty is a structural thing. And so all of these things shape each other. You've got a circumstance, for example, where if you are low income uh, and a person of color, your probability of paying uh, more in your water as a function of the way that water resources are allocated is high. And all that does is exacerbate your circumstance, right? Because you're paying more for something that should be free. And, um, and then what happens is your excess amounts of capital that you can use to do other things in your life, that goes away. Um, and over time, what happens is uh, the stress of poverty itself is what tends to exacerbate a lot of, uh, a lot of the addiction that we see in low-income communities. And so, um, you know, we have to be clear, addiction is something that affects all people, right? But it does, like almost any disease, tend to afflict the poor worse and more often. And, um, and the, the chronicity of poverty and the chronic lack of access to basic resources and the chronic stress that comes from just trying to get basic resources is often what shapes that. And so uh, these things tend to go together. You know, my work has always been about trying to understand racial and socioeconomic inequalities in health. And there's no question that almost always the poor and almost always people of color are gonna suffer any disease more. It doesn't matter what that is. And, um, uh, and so, you know, understanding how and why that happens, that has everything to do with access to basic resources uh, and what one has to pay. I mean, just to put it in perspective, <clears throat> you know, a, a community that I know really well uh, is, is in Detroit. If you want to buy a basic orange in Detroit, um, and uh, that, that's really actually hard to come by because most of the time, if you're in one of the neighborhoods, um, getting to a grocery store where they sell oranges is, is hard to do. And then not only that, the oranges that they sell tend not to be as great and they tend to be a bit more expensive because they're limited. And so you're paying more for an orange in a neighborhood in Detroit often uh, than you would be in one of the suburbs at a Kroger, right? And, um, and just, you know, just to highlight what that means then is you wonder why obesity is so much more common uh, in low-income and um, communities of color. Well, uh, it's because access to the good foods is limited um, and access to the less healthy foods is higher. And so the decisions about foods, they're dictated by what's available, not, not about decisions. People think that obesity is a function of decision-making. Usually it's not, it's a function of access. Um, and, so, uh, and so when you think about water, you think about uh, native communities, and you think about uh, addiction, they're all related because, well, access to those basic things is more expensive. That drives the stress of chronic poverty. That tends to drive um, the affliction with addiction that uh, unfortunately, we see too often in, in low-income communities of color. Mm. So you grew up in Michigan. Um, what are some of your favorite places uh, <clears throat> to experience the water, the rivers, the lakes, the streams, the Great Lakes? I'll tell you, uh, my family 
has had cottages on Crystal Lake in Crystal, Michigan, in Montcalm County for the past 90 years. And every summer, uh, I try and get out there at least at least for a weekend, if not a week. Um, but that lake will always be a place that is special to me. Um, I'm not going to lie, whenever I go to, to Grand Haven, uh, I've got to walk out and see the water just because it's, it's beautiful out there. Um, and then, of course, you know, you can't beat the water out here in Traverse City. Uh, so uh, that's pretty awesome. And, and then um, by, uh, I, I grew up in Oakland County, and there are a number of little lakes out there, too. So uh, I used to like to, uh, to go and putz around in those lakes as well. So, I mean, one of the most incredible things about the state of Michigan is that uh, you just have more access to, to water here than almost anywhere else. And, you know, we get to take that for granted, but we shouldn't. Absolutely. Okay, this is kind of a fun question. Um, our, our campaign is fueled by music. Uh, I'm a musician. I recognize the intrinsic power of music to fuel movements and bring people together. Uh, but it also has the power to fuel campaigns. So if you could have your way um, and have your top three artists of all time uh, play all time, at, okay. yeah, at, at a campaign rally, you could do active or of all time. Okay. Uh, who would your top three be at an Abdul rally? So I'm a I'm a huge hip hop fan. Um, you know, grew me up too. on it, and uh, uh, there is you know to to me the 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 I think the song that best captures um, the challenges with uh, with poverty and lack of access to resources, but the hope um, that one has to address them is changes by Tupac. Um, mm. And if I could have Tupac attend anything of mine, I would have. I, I, the Tupac song by far changes. It's a yeah. fantastic song. Beautiful. Um, I remember when uh, Obama was elected and going back. There's a line: uh, "We are ready to see a black president." And I remember going back and listening to that song and just like breaking down, crying. Mm. Um, uh, nowadays, I'm a huge fan of Logic. Um, mm. He's got some, I think, incredibly powerful uh, uh, conscience tracks that, that I think are fantastic. I'd love to see him out at one of our events. Mm -hmm. We actually had Alex Ebert um, come out mm -hmm. to uh, one of our rallies in, uh, in Ann Arbor, and he was pretty cool. Um, and then... Uh, Sharp and the <clears throat> Magnetic Zero. Exactly, yeah. Um, and then, uh, I'm not going to lie, I think it'd be a lot of fun. I don't know if you guys saw yesterday, but uh, Bernie Sanders tweeted at Cardi B. Um, I saw that, and, yeah. uh, and was thanking her for her support of, of Social Security reform. <laughs> and I think a journalist asked him, uh, so what's your favorite Cardi B song? And he's like, well, I, uh, I'd be lying to you if I told you I was a student of rap. But, <laughs> but, uh, but I think it actually be a lot of fun to have Cardi out. Uh, she, you know, she's got connections to Michigan. And um, I just, in her, in her music and in her, uh, her persona, I think has done an incredible job uh, being able to speak up and speak out on a series of issues. The thing about music is it has the ability, you know, I always sort of think about it as... Um, a psychological IV, right? Insofar as its ability to penetrate into your psychology uh, and move into your psychological bloodstream is unique. And so uh, there's so much power in music to do that. Um, mm. And um, I think Cardi uh, has taken politics into the mainstream in some pretty profound but not obvious ways. And, and that's the thing that I really appreciate, right? When you have somebody like her talking about inequality, um, and the experience of inequality in raising some of those questions about why things are the way they are, I think um, it moves the consciousness in ways that just straight up talking about uh, politics doesn't. And so uh, I'd have to say Cardi B, Logic, um, 
uh, for some folks on my staff, I'd have to say Beyonce, otherwise they'd, they'd, they'd smack me. Um, be, that's right. But, uh, but, but, um, but I'd have to say if I could, any, any musician in history, uh, Tupac would be up there. Um, I also, I also could see us going, uh, back a little bit, um, uh, yeah, I can see us going back a little bit, and uh, you know, I can see Stevie Wonder. Um, Saginaw. Uh, just, yeah, exactly. He's got that Saginaw Detroit connection, um, and uh, and and then you know, you've got you've got the the good old 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 fashioned Motown folks that uh, I think would be a lot of fun to get to meet as well. So um, so a lot to choose from. Yeah, great. Uh, we could talk about music all day. I feel. Um, it was speaking of hip hop too. It was really great to see Kendrick Lamar be awarded the Pulitzer. Yeah, Pass. amazing, uh, amazing. So um, you got to go. You've got a town hall tonight right. in Traverse City. Can you just kind of tell people where you're going to be in the next couple of weeks, how they can connect with you? Yeah, so we'll be all over the place. Um, best best place to go is just uh, abdulformichigan.com slash events. And if you're excited about uh, what we're doing, I hope you'll get involved. Um, look, this is a movement that, um, that is inspired by people. It is a movement that is about people. And it's not even about the conversations that we have with people. It's about the conversations that people are having with each other. And so if you're excited about getting involved, I hope that you'll go out uh, and, and sign up on our website, abdulformichigan.com. Uh, come check us out tonight. We will be at, um, at the Grand Traverse Resort, Resort and Lodge. Um, I hope that you'll be there. It'll be a lot of fun, good conversation about where we are and where we hope we're headed. Uh, but we've got a lot more work to do in the next three months. Our, our campaign is built on people. I'm not uh, rich enough to, to be buying Super Bowl ads. I'm not uh, connected enough to be tapped on the head by all the right people, but my hope is that when it comes to the ideals and the ideas to make those ideals take off, that this is the campaign that is doing that. And so uh, we rely on real people uh, getting out and having conversations with each other about what they want for themselves, their society, their kids, their grandkids. And um, if we get we are right on that, uh, then I believe we win this campaign. Thanks a lot for your time, Abdul. Appreciate you, sir. Best of luck. If you've resonated with what you've heard in this episode, we encourage you to get involved with the Clean Water Campaign for Michigan. Help us change the game from divide-and-conquer, top-down politics to a grassroots community effort where people from all walks are united in pressuring anyone running for public office in Michigan to stand strong on clean water issues. Don't forget, fellow Michiganders, to get out and vote in the primary elections this coming Tuesday, August 7th. Visit michigancleanwater.org to learn more and follow us on Instagram and Facebook to stay connected. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.